Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Sovereign Debt Reminiscences edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It is a very, very special week this week because we have not only Anna Shemansky and myself, Felix Salmon, talking about things, but we have managed to rope in the one and only Matt Levine. Hello, Matt. Hey, Felix. Uh, Matt writes the world's best newsletter for Bloomberg View, and... Matt knows everything there is to know about being a lawyer, being a banker, credit default swaps, and all these, and oh, and also um, overnight financing rates. We This is going to be a super nerdy uh, edition of Slate Money. It's going to be loads of fun, and we are going to talk about all of this stuff, and we're going to ask Matt just how much money he could possibly have made had he stayed a lawyer instead of becoming a journalist. And Matt is going to tell us in Slate Plus all about overnight financing rates. And we are, Matt, are we not in a post-Labor era now? Kind of, not really. We're, we're, we're at the beginning of the end of the library. We're <laughs> in the beginning of the post-Labor This is But a weekend. There is going to be, there's going to be like a whole new libel. We're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. That's coming up in a minute. But before we do that, we are going to talk about Russian aluminium companies. Yes. <laughs> Anna Shemansky, what has happened to Rusal? And what is Rusal? And why should I care about Rusal? Well, it's Rusal. <laughs> Rusal. Yes. My, my Russian pronunciation. It's also aluminum. I know. We're never going <laughs> to. Yeah. Okay. So it's either. Either Rusal is an aluminium company or Rusal is an aluminium company or something like that. Either way, it seems to have wound up on a sanctions list. Yes. And this is a much more significant sanction than previous U.S. sanctions that have come down. So if we're looking at where Russia was a little over a week ago, the Russian markets, they weren't so bad. You know, ruble was fairly stable. The Many of the companies are being helped by higher commodity prices. But then... <laughs> you had U.S. sanctions come down. And U.S. sanctions that it appears were significantly more strict than the market thought. And one of the biggest companies or the biggest company that was involved is this massive aluminum company called Rusal. So it weirdly, just to make this clear for those of us who haven't been following along in great detail, Vladimir Putin's best friend, Donald Trump, is being much harsher on Russia than Obama ever was. Yes. And there for two reasons is why these sanctions are actually much more significant. One is that it is involving not only individuals associated with important Russian companies, but the companies themselves. And this is important because this is now affecting not only new issuances, but secondary market trading, 
why this is important is previous sanctions, if they sanctioned like Sparebank, you could still trade Sparebank equity. You just couldn't be involved in a new issuance of Sparebank. This is different. This means that U.S. holders of Rusal debt or equity have to divest. And that's why this is a bit more significant. And it doesn't just affect U.S. holders. It also affects, and this is where we're going to really start getting nerdy. And this is going to be a nerdy issue of slate money. Matt and my favorite two companies in the world, Euroclear and Clearstream, (laughs) that you, if you know Euroclear and Clearstream, you're like, you're a financial nerd. And if you're like, who on earth, wait, what? Then you're a normal person. Matt, who are Euroclear and, and Clearstream? Um, I'm not sure I could tell the difference, between them, but they're <laughs> they're clearing companies that um, that uh, if you trade debt of of companies, you know, in Europe, they are the sort of plumbing that uh, that like keeps the debt for you essentially, and so that that uh, you know moves the money around. Basically, if you receive a bond coupon on any kind of global bond. It, there is a pretty much 100% chance that bond coupon is going to go through one of and they're both Belgian, right? I think. Yeah, one of these Belgian companies. Um and these Belgian companies are saying, well, America has put sanctions on Russell, Sparebank, whoever. We're not going to deal with that company, which means that they can't pay bond coupons. Yes, because the language of these sanctions included language that would affect you know not only these clearing companies but a lot of foreign banks in general that they can't engage in significant transactions with uh, with Rusal. So yes, you're correct. Rusal is not going to be able to right now it looks very hard for them to pay their like dollar coupon on their euro bond. So this reminds me and I'm sure Matt as well of nothing so much as the famous Judge Grisey injunction on yeah, Argentina which which you know we have talked about many times on Slate Money where a federal judge basically enjoined um, Americans from and Euroclear and Clearstream and everyone else from, from clearing coupons that the debtor wanted to make. And we have exactly the same situation here. We have the willingness to pay and we have all of the money, presumably the cash flows, which make it possible to make the coupon payment. But it looks likely that we're going to have what, a series of significant bond defaults out of Russia now? Possibly. And Rusal is a, you know, it's a, this is a blue chip Russian company. This is a company that is highly integrated into the global commodities market. And a lot of EM investors are going to be holding Rusal. So this is a much bigger deal than, this is why this is a much bigger deal with, than previous sanctions. And it also suggests that the U.S. is looking at sanctioning companies that are not just kind of small offshoots, but that companies that could actually impact U.S. investors. So if you're Roussel, do you um, hand bondholders envelopes of rubles in Moscow? Like, is- yeah, so there was one thought about them trying to pay in euros because they're not using the dollar system, but the banks aren't going to clear it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I think previously when you've had sanctions, what ends up happening is the companies kind of rely on the Russian state to help them in, in different ways. I, I don't know if they're going to be able to make these coupon payments. I uh, I really don't understand that, how that's going to work. But I do think that that's actually not the biggest story when you're talking about Rusal and why this is important. I mean, I think the the two slightly bigger stories are the fact that Rusal is outside of China, the biggest supplier of aluminum. And we're already talking about a market, at least in the U.S., where manufacturers that use aluminum are going to be dealing with higher prices because of the tariffs. And now they could be looking at significantly higher prices if all of a sudden you have a tremendous amount of supply 
that's being taken off the market. It will probably find its way through Asian markets, but it's not going to be as frictionless as it would have. So it's basically I, another it's, aluminum tariff, right? It's like a, it's in addition to being a Russia sanction, it's a, it's a sort of aluminum tariff. It is, yeah. That is most most going to affect U.S. So if I'm Boeing, say, and I buy a lot of aluminum, then now, and I'm putting out a request for aluminum companies to supply me aluminum, I'm no longer allowed to accept aluminum from Roussel. I have to accept it from someone else. And so now all of the other aluminum companies are no longer competing with Roussel and they can raise yes. their prices accordingly. And, and what's also interesting is the LME, London Mercantile Exchange, like a third of the aluminum that they would normally have on their markets is from Roussel. And they've now said they're not taking Roussel. So that's a big deal as well. Because now they're going to have to be sourcing that from other companies. So the the wonderful, seamless, global fungibility of financial markets seems to be falling apart at the seams. Well, and I think what's important here is that, as I probably keep kind of reiterating, is that Roussel is a major company. And I think this is spooking a lot of investors to think if they're, they're potentially targeting Roussel, then any commodity producer in Russia could be at risk because you are not a big Russian company without ties to the state. Whether or they're for official that matter, or unofficial. Or for that matter, any Russian company. Yes. Uh, or even potentially the Russian sovereign. Yes. So, um, yeah. So basically, if you don't want to take the risk of Donald Trump waking up one morning and imposing some new sanctions for whatever reason, then you get out of Russia and you try and, and, and effectively what you do is you just kind of say that's just a don't touch this country kind of country for the time being for the foreseeable future correct i think that this is interesting because the last time we had major sanctions on russia russia was actually in a worse place in terms of you know their reserves and in terms of uh, inflation and a number of other things and frankly because oil prices were declining so russia is actually better positioned now but they could actually be hurt a little bit more by this because under previous sanctions many investors could actually make a decent amount of money by continuing to invest in russia while all of this was going on because a lot of investors were pulling out because there wasn't necessarily the threat that these that secondary market trading was going to be sanctioned. Now that that threat exists for not just Rusal, but for potentially any Russian company, that could have a more dramatic impact on Russia. Now, Russia is a small part of global economy. This is certainly true. But Russia is also very closely integrated to many EU manufacturers, Germany in particular. And I think this also just raises potential risks down the line. If we start to see the type of geopolitical tension that we've been seeing and this kind of heightening, then you could potentially have a company like, I mean, I think it's unlikely that you're ever going to get to like Gazprom because they supply like a third of the EU's gas. But I mean, you're talking about Gazprom, Rosneft, Lukoil, like these are companies that the EU relies on. So that's why this could eventually become a much bigger deal. So how how has Europe reacted to this? I think right now it's been muted, although it just doesn't appear that this was anticipated. And, And I would imagine, as I've said, at this point, I find it very hard to believe that any U.S. administration would want to anger the EU as much as they probably would. However, I mean, from what we've seen, obviously, with the U.K., there is a lot of anger right now at Russia. And I don't think that means that, like, Theresa May is going to want to stop Europe from getting um, supplied by Gazprom. But I do think that there is at least a 
bigger risk right now in the commodities market than there was previously. I think previously it appeared a little bit more like this was just a lot of noise. This is real. So that does change things. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. did just effectively impose aluminum tariffs on Russian aluminum in Europe, yeah. right? Like, it's true. Which is a sort of... No, it's true. And and it's very likely that if things... A bit can, of an assault on sovereignty, right? Like to, to say that you have to pay more for aluminum. No, I mean, it, it's true. And I mean, to a certain extent, that's the case with almost any set of sanctions that... I mean, normally, although I will say sort of, right? Because it's because, because, um, you know, it's a question of like how much the sanctions apply, not just to U.S. Um, participants, but to like the financial system and how much they like flow to Europe, right? Like, Correct. And, and also previously, um, when the Obama administration was, um, increasing sanctions, they were doing it along with the EU. It was very clear that they were doing it in, you know, they were not going to put through sanctions, even when the Congress wanted them to, that were stronger than what the EU wanted. I don't know if we're seeing that right now with the Trump administration. <laughs> we're not seeing like close coordination <laughs> between between the White House and Europe, European Union. Shocking. Can I also just have one other little nerdy fact? And yes. Then we, can, we can probably yes. move on. One is more that, sh- so fact. aluminum prices have increased, I think it's something like 10, 15 percent. But alumina with an A, <laughs> prices have increased like 30%. That's actually like the powder you use to make aluminum. And why this is interesting is because aluminum, at least interesting to me, aluminum, there actually was a lot of supply in the market. There was actually already not enough supply of alumina. So that means that that could actually kind of filter through and be another thing to really increase prices. There, there were The reason that supply was low because there was this Brazilian company that had to shut down because of environmental issues. <laughs> but the point is that this could be a like a real issue for U.S. manufacturers. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, let's talk about lawyers. This is this is the the put Matt Levine on the spot segment of um, Slate Money. Matt, you are a lawyer. I've been I was a lawyer for like a year and a half at a big law firm. I've been a columnist for seven years. I was an investment banker for four years. But you go to law school, you go to a law firm for like a minute. It stays with you for the rest of your life. It really does. You know, when everyone says, you know, what percentage of members of Congress are lawyers or whatever, it's, they're not actually lawyers. They're members of Congress, but they still count. Once once you have a law degree, you are a lawyer. Um, and you left law school and became a, a sort of big law lawyer. And then you left big law to become a banker at, at Goldman Sachs. We may have heard of them. And then you left Goldman Sachs to go become a blogger blogger um which is a, a natural, very common career track. <laughs> a natural career progression um but you know but what tell me about the relative standing of of lawyers and bankers and what they think of each other it's so hard you know there's like a stereotype where um the bankers all really desperately want to believe this that um that the the senior partners at law firms like take orders from like the junior analysts at at, at banks like it's a very important part of the bankers' self esteem and there's truth to that right like when you're working on a deal uh, you have a law firm that represents you and the, the junior bankers will sort of be giving will be often interacting with the law firm but um, 
I worked at a nice law firm. I worked at a Walked to Lipton Resident Cats, you may have heard of them. Um and you know, we were like we were like we didn't have that. Like we just sort of were we're 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 kind of parallel strategic advisors to the bankers and we tried to be um as uh important and central to the deal as 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 the bankers were. And I think that you know were, were you hired by the companies or by the bank? You're hired by the you were hired by the company. We were representing principals. I think that like bankers have this misconception because the bankers will hire uh, law firms to represent the banks, and then those law firms will, in fact, take orders from the banks. But in like big time M and A, the company will hire a bank, and the company will hire a law firm or multiple banks and multiple law firms, and will take advice from both of them. And you know, we'll see them as sort of uh, potentially see them as equals in, in in advising the company on different specialties. And historically, is it fair to say that the Bankers have made more money than the lawyers. Oh yeah, I mean. So why is that? Um, well, so the biggest reason, so just two two sort of obvious reasons. One is that the bankers' compensation is more at risk. Classically, lawyers bill by the hour. Bankers do not bill by the hour. They bill by the completed deal, typically a percentage of the amount of the completed deal, and so. If you're a banker, you basically spend all your time running around and pitching deals and you execute like a couple of deals and you have to get paid for all of the work that you spent pitching and all of the deals that you didn't get done. You have to get paid on the, on the deals that you did. And so you have just more volatility and more risk. And so you have to get paid more for the ones that actually go through. If you're a lawyer, you work on a deal for six months and it doesn't go through. You just send them a bill for your hourly rate, which is, you know, a thousand dollars an hour or whatever. You make them a discount, but like you're still billing them a lot. Uh, so that's one reason. The other reason is that. Um, this is not always true, but, but it is a pretty big part of big time M&A right now is, and, and for the you know, recent, recent past is that banks like have money and they, their money is often involved in the transaction. And so they do financing of, of, of the mergers. And so, uh, you know, the companies have a bit more interest in, in, uh, companies need the banks a little more than the lawyers because they can dispense with advice. They can't dispense with money. Um, so in any case, the, the reason we are talking about this now is because there was this article in the FT about how the world of lawyers is becoming much less genteel than maybe it once was and a little bit more mercenary and that and and we started seeing rather large numbers being thrown around like 10 million dollars a year for lawyers which sounds to me more like a pretty impressive income even for a banker. Yeah, I mean, so this FT article starts with an anecdote about Scott Barche, who's a, a big-time uh, mergers and acquisitions partner at Cravath, who left for... Um, Paul Weiss. Paul Weiss. Uh, and it starts with just some numbers. Uh, he brought in $100 million of fees to Cravath, advising on $300 billion of deals, which is like big numbers. So if you divide, <laughs> he made like three basis points on his deals, which is, you know, like it's a lot of money, but it's... um. You know, the bankers on those deals probably made 10 times that, uh, as, as, as their fee, right? So it's still, you know, it's a, it's, 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 he's doing well personally, but it's still, you know, like the, the banks still get paid more. So you think that even if he's going, if he, even, even if he's making $10 million a year at Paul Weiss, um, he's still kind of being underpaid? No, I mean, depends on how you count, right? I mean, he brought in $100 million to Cravath, right? Um, 
So you got 10% of that. So, you know. Yeah. And we'd have to obviously know exactly what he was getting paid before. But I think part of the issue in this article was bringing up is that Cravath is one of these firms that has this kind of strict lockstep system where you're really only paid on seniority. And so you don't get the types of performance bonuses that you can now get at other firms like Paul Weiss. Yeah. I mean, law has never been a bonus culture, right? Like no one gets, I mean, you get bonuses, but it's not like, um, it's not like your pay is based on your performance for that year and like you're, and is highly var- variable and handed to you in the form of a bonus at the end of the year. Like, you know, when I was at a law firm, every associate who started in my class got the same bonus every year. Um, so if you did a good job, you get the same bonus as you did a, you know, less good job. Um, which is great, by the way. It's great. Like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, um, uh, you know, like the, the, they'll talk a big game about how it like fosters camaraderie and teamwork and everything, but it really does. Like it's nice to not be competing against your, uh, your, your coworkers, but it's just, you know, not at all the, uh, the approach that banking takes. And it's increasingly not the approach that law firms take with partners. So now law firm partners who used to just make a percentage of the profits as partners, as the word implies, are moving more towards what's, <laughs> This lovely phrase, eat what you kill, which, like, it's just, like, you would not hear that phrase spoken without a large amount of distaste in an august institution like Cravath, Swain, and Moore. Yeah. Um, it's kind of gross, right? And it's like, um, you know, a law firm, like, like, so if you're like Cravath, right, you have M&A partners who, like, bring in M&A deals and they bring in tons and tons and tons of money. But like to do an M&A deal, you need a tax lawyer who knows about M&A tax and who can get the sort of tax aspects of the transaction done. And that person isn't killing anything, right? Like that person is <laughs> like, you know, potentially they're bringing in separately tax stuff that people want to, you know, companies will be like, oh, I need some tax stuff and they'll go to the Cravath tax lawyer. But frequently, you know, the Cravath will be like, we need an M&A tax lawyer who can do the tax stuff on our M&A deals. And that person's phone doesn't ring, you know, except when it's the M&A partner calling. So, uh, it's, it's, you get like sort of, you know, the, the sort of client facing, uh, M&A people who bring in the, the deals. And then you get like the people who actually kind of do the work and sort of make sure the lawyering gets done. So I was a lawyer, then I was a banker, right? And in banking, there are people whose job is basically to bring in deals. And then when the deal has been brought in, they just go away and someone else does the deal. And do these people normally have like a chairman title? Yeah. But even, even kind of like, even like, yeah, like the, guy named chairman is there to like, you know, schmooze with clients, but like even kind of lower down, there are people who, you know, like a lot of the work of executing deals is done by relatively junior people. And, uh, and the senior people spend a lot more time trying to find the next deal, uh, in law that there's much more of a culture of like a senior lawyer is doing law stuff. Uh, is actually giving legal advice. They're not necessarily drafting the merger agreement, but they're like trying to give law advice on the deal that is happening. Uh, but you know, that culture has changed too, right? And it's much more, have we, have we it's reached more commercial. A, where have we reached a point at which senior lawyers pitch deals in the way that bankers do? They don't pitch deals in the sense of like, I mean, not usually. They don't pitch deals in the sense of going to a company and saying, you should do this deal. But they are, they conceive of their job as being bringing in business more than 
doing legal advice or yeah. giving legal advice. And, and I do think there's a... They're pitching themselves. Well, I mean, okay. Right, so, and they're, they're yeah. in the company. Yeah. And I would say that there is a spectrum between the like really old school pure lockstep and full just eat what you kill. I mean, I, I do think a lot of firms now are kind of in the middle where there is still a bit of that former structure, but there is also a sense of if you do have certain lawyers who are just bringing in a lot more revenue, it does seem like it makes sense that they should be paid a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that, um, you know, if you notice, like the, the lockstep firms are the most profitable firms for the most part. And like there's a. Uh, What's the know, causality there? Um, well, it's it's they are. Are they, are they lockstep because they're profitable? But um, OK, and explain that. What, what, what is it about profitability which causes lockstep? Well, so there is a bit of causality both ways. I mean, like the, the what is it about co- profitability that causes lockstep is people complain less if they're getting paid a lot, right? Like okay. you can keep a star partner, not every star partner, but you can keep most of your star partners uh, if they're just getting paid more than they would be getting paid elsewhere, even if like your less star partners are still getting paid more. Um, but like the the other the the sort of the causality that it's not causality the way, but um, uh, like. You know, in, in finance, you talk about like the value of the seat versus the value of the person, right? If you're like the government bond trader at Goldman Sachs, you're going to make a lot of money. And it's not because you're a genius. It's because you're trading government bonds at Goldman Sachs and just people need to trade with you, right? Um, being a partner at Cravath has like some of that element too, where you're just, you're going to get credibility. You're going to like be able to bring in clients because you say, I'm a partner at Cravath, right? So, um, the, the sort of the like old school, or not even necessarily old school because Wachtell is relatively young as these things go. Uh, but like the, the sort of like big name blue chip firms have enough value in the seat that they can make the argument to their partners. Look, you're not getting, you know, you didn't bring in a hundred million dollars of business because you're a genius. You brought in a hundred million dollars of business because you sit at Cravath or Wachtell. So that helps sort of keep the lockstep culture. And then you have like the sort of like, you know, these firms are old and they have like a, you know, like they can say like, the august tradition of Cravath is what brings people in, and that august tradition includes being lockstep. And I have to say, I like the idea of an august tradition. I like yeah. the idea of, I mean, since we're obviously in, um, you know, sovereign debt reminiscence mode this week, I like the idea that you can have someone like Lee Bouquet to Cleary Gottlieb, who just kind of writes interesting, awesomely fab- fabulous things on, you know, in public and I don't know how much business he brings in, you know? Yeah. He's been around forever. I'm sure he makes lots of money. You know, in investment banking, there's this like um, nostalgia for like the days when it was more of a profession of like advising trusted clients whom you'd known forever and less of a sort of like mercenary public company run business. And, you know, having gone from a lot of banking, like you said, well, it's more like that, right? And and the bankers miss that, or like some of the sort of more senior bankers miss that and, you know, wish they were back in the days of private partnerships. And, you know, the law firms are private partnerships and some of them want to be more mercenary and commercial and kind of public company-like. And also want to continue to be able to attract talent that if you have, you know, people considering what direction they're going to go in and you're looking at compensation and yes, although it's true that you're almost always going to make more money in investment banking than you are in law, there is still 
there was still a range and you that's not true by the way well i mean that's true i mean i guess you're true that's you are correct about that but i and i don't and there is just less less variance in law right like you you can you can do quite well and you keep doing quite well and it's less and there's certainly no shortage of people who are capable of doing those law jobs it's true i'm just saying that if you're thinking about attracting the best talent now you have you know a few different paths people are considering i mean also obviously like just consulting tech, there finance, laws. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't. So, but wait, wait. I mean, I want to stop and just interrogate this a little bit. Why is it important? You know, this 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 idea of attracting the best talent and the idea that you want the very best talent to be at your law firm. You know, in in a sort of ultra competitive way. I think that's exactly what Matt and I are talking about in this kind of more genteel old world. That you, it's not actually necessary in a world where the value of the seat is so high to attract the very best talent. You can have just, there's a lot of extremely good people and you can pick them more or less at random. It doesn't matter if you pick the very best and you will be fine. I don't think they see it that way. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I... Or or sorry, they might see it that way commercially, but like, you know, they're in this intellectual profession where they have to come to work every day. They want to be able to say and think and believe that they hang out with like the very smartest people and not with like some schmo who can do a deal. Yeah, I would just say that I don't think that there's no difference in talent between one lawyer or another. I do think that it is probably true that a lot of these firms that are trying to attract like stars are probably going to end up overpaying because I think, as you say, the seat probably generated a lot of those fees, not just the person. And yes, that's probably true. But I think right now when you're looking at law firms, banks, whatever, that want to be the most competitive, I, I do think part of that is who they have on staff. I think that that matters. And and I think that there is not a just limitless pool of individuals who have the skill set to do all of these jobs. And so if you're looking where I'm going to be spending you know, 90 to 100 hours in this role, I'm just spending 90 to 100 hours in this role, which one am I probably going to do a little bit better in? If law firms can't compete by offering, you know, bigger bonuses, they're going to be at a disadvantage. <laughs> I miss them. <laughs> I miss banking for a minute, but law is nice. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Okay, so this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Um, Matt, how do you pronounce this company? I pronounce it Hovnanian, which I think is about right. Hovnanian. Okay. All right. Tell us the saga of Hovnanian. So Hovnanian is a company. They build homes. And they're like, you know, kind of a mediocre credit. They're junk rated. They're like C, 
triple C rated kind of company. They have some bonds. They have a lot of bonds. Some of them are due pretty soon. They're, you know, they're facing a little pressure on refinancing their bonds. And they are refinancing those bonds in this weird way where they're getting a lot of money from a company called GSO, which is part of Blackstone Group. And they are exchanging some bonds, doing some stuff, but they're also buying back a few of their bonds and putting them in a subsidiary of Hovenanian. And then they're defaulting on those bonds. They're just not going to pay interest on those bonds to their own to their own subsidiary the the left hand refuses to make a payment to the right hand. and they've and they've not only refused they've they've signed a contract with with gso or they've they've signed a commitment to um to uh to not pay those bonds which they owe to themselves what that does is that it puts them in default uh probably not on their other bond contracts but it puts them in default for purposes of their credit default swaps that are outstanding on Hovenanian, which are just derivatives that pay off if uh, if if Hovenanian defaults on its debt. So they've manufactured just enough of a default on their debt, not to piss off any of their bondholders, but enough to trigger this credit default swap, which means that these credit default swaps will pay off. It so happens that GSO owns a lot of these credit default swaps and will get paid off when they default. Now, there's one more, th- one more aspect of this that is by the way, GSO has been involved in trades like that before. There was one for a, a Spanish company called Codere that um, uh, became famous enough that John Stewart talked about it. It was a couple of years ago. Um, he was he was sort of horrified by this. Um, so GSO has done this stuff before. What's interesting in Havnanian is that not only are they defaulting, but Havnanian's bonds actually, like Havnanian has done a lot of financing in, in relatively recent times when they were in kind of not great financial shape. And all of their bonds have like 10% coupons. And all basically trade above a hundred cents on the dollar. So the way CDS works is that you trigger it, it, you default or whatever, and then there's like an auction. But basically, it's like you get paid on your CDS a hundred cents on the dollar minus whatever the bonds are worth. So if the bonds are worth like forty because it's in default and it's a disaster, then you get paid sixty cents on the dollar. So to just if, to just like explain, there was a bond default by Fannie and Freddie during the financial crisis. They both defaulted on their bonds. Technically, there was a technical default. Um, Bondholders didn't get hurt in any way. There was a CDS auction. The CDS auction basically took place at par. And so basically no money changed hands and everyone kept on going happily. So long as the bonds keep on trading at par, this is the idea behind why it shouldn't matter if Hovnanian refuses to make a payment from its left pocket to it right, its right pocket, so long as it's paying the rest of its debt and its rest of, the rest of its debt is trading at par, no harm, no foul. Right. But uh, what what they did, what Hovnanian did, is they did some refinancing of their debt. They did some shuffling around. And basically one thing they did is they offered, if you have some of these old bonds, you can exchange them for some new bonds. You can get two different kinds of new bonds. You get like half of one, half of the other. One of them is like a normal kind of bond that's actually worth more than a hundred cents on the dollar. And the other one is this weird bond that's like a, a that has a very long term and, and uh, pays 5% interest. And if you kind of like plug that into the math, it's worth about 50 cents on the dollar. So they've manufactured this new bond that's worth 50 cents on the dollar. You're fine if you do this because you get like, you know, like you do, you exchange for a package. So you get like a bond that's worth more, you get a bond that's worth less, you get some cash, you're fine. But you have this bond that's worth less. And then 
they default and then there's a CDS auction and then you go to the CDS auction and you're like, I have this bond that's worth 50 cents. And the theory is you get paid 50 cents on the dollar in your CDS and you sort of make all this money even though the the regular bonds are trading at par. So this is um, GSO and, and Blackstone gaming the CDS system and, and not, as you say, not for the first time. Um, I remember vividly the Greek default because obviously sure. this is the um, reminiscing about sovereign debt default sure. edition of um, Slate Money. And Greece had the opposite. And what Greece did was was they used these things called collective action clauses, which basically they did a bond swap and they sucked in all of the old bonds, which would have been trading at low prices and issued new bonds, which were which could easily have been trading at par. And right, it was they would suck in hundred dollars worth of old bonds trading at thirty cents on the dollar, and they'd give you back thirty dollars worth of new bonds trading at, trading at par. Cents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then and then the people who bought credit protection um, were like, "I need to get paid off on my insurance here," and so but they can't because the only bonds which are trading. A trading at par. That was a worry in the end. It, it like more or less, out. more by luck than judgment, it kind of worked out. But it does seem that something is kind of broken in the CDS world. And when the whole Greek thing happened, people, including myself, were saying, are people even going to still use CDS if this kind of craziness can happen? And evidently the answer is yes. I mean, who is writing single names credit default swaps if this kind of thing is even possible? I well, mean, it's, a, it's a much smaller market now, yeah. obviously, than it used to be. And I, I think this particular example is fascinating, but it's also a very small part of the market. And I don't know if I think that there's a huge risk that all of a sudden a lot of completely financially healthy companies are going to start engaging in opportunistic defaults to pay out CDS holders. Yeah, but there's a range between completely financially healthy companies and, you know, kind of spivvy companies where uh, the spivvy companies are the ones where you're buying a lot of CDS because you're worried about them. Like, there's a lot of home builder CDS. Um, <laughs> you know, you're worried about them and then, you know, they're worrying and then someone pitches a deal to them and they uh, they cheat a little. Um, I mean, to answer your question, who's who's writing the CDS? Well, we know Goldman is because they're constantly in these news articles about it. And we know a company called Solus Capital is because they sued to try <laughs> to block this deal. There's, you know, some other big, uh, you know, like, like banks are always kind of intermediating these trades. I mean, so it, it. it's hard to feel sorry for people who write credit default oh, Well, and this is Impossible. the other, this is the other <laughs> issue is that I mean you're you're talking about like single name CDS. This is a market of like only sophisticated investors. So it, it's really just you have essentially extremely wealthy individuals on both sides who are one is trying to one up the other. I I I mean I'm not saying that I don't think this is sketchy and it's possible that ISDA will eventually change the CDS contracts, but I, I don't think this is going to completely like throw the entire CDS market. Well, I mean, so I, don't, I, I think it's great. Like, I love it. It's wonderful. Um, I'm totally for people gaming it. Um, I do think, though, that like if you kind of like take this case to the to its logical extreme, then this is a way to manufacture to to change CDS from an instrument that like pays off when a company defaults pays off like the amount of loss on the default to an instrument that pays off when a company wants it to and pays off as much as the company wants it to. 
And so there, it's like a very arbitrary instrument. And if you see like a bunch of these, and there've been like three of these, um, if you see a bunch of these, then you're just much less confident in buying CDS as a, or in writing CDS as a, as a sort of the investment it's meant to be, which is some sort of credit investment. And so you can see why ISDA is in fact worried about it. ISDA is the agency that, or the trade group that figures out CDS terms. Um, and they're worried about it and they're trying to fix this. And I think it's not easy to, I think it's not obvious how to fix this. I think the first step that everyone's talking about is, uh, if you default on debt to yourself, that probably <laughs> shouldn't count. So like, you fix that, you kind of get part of the way there. You'd fix this particular case, but like the broader case of how to figure out, like, you know, the, the gaming of how much the CDS pays off is, is a little harder. And, and in terms of the real world, like beyond the CDS world, it looks like probably the effects are positive, right? I mean, Hovnanian at the margin is getting slightly cheaper financing than it would otherwise be able to get as a result of CDS shenanigans. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is like if you write CDS on Hovnanian, you're taking credit risk on Hovnanian. You're like investing in its credit. But you're not investing in its credit by lending it money, which is the normal way to invest in its credit. You're like doing this weird zero-sum derivative with like some weird hedge fund, right? And so what GSO has done is find a way to transmute that zero-sum side bet on Havnanian's credit into actually lending to Havnanian. So it is like kind of like it's like it's turning like abstract finance into actual money for companies. That's kind of cool. Win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, I think it's time for numbers round. And um, this is a rare, this is one of the rare times on Slate Money that we actually have a predetermined number. Uh, normally, uh, the numbers come as a complete surprise to everyone else. Um, but I am going to start off this numbers numbers round by saying $1 billion, which is the amount of money that John Paulson, a not particularly impressive hedge fund manager who's based on the Upper East Side of New York, is going to have to pay an income tax this year. Um, this is on top of half a billion dollars that he paid late last year. So call it one and a half billion dollars in taxes that he's paying 2017, 2018, 10 years after the financial crisis. Um, why is he paying so much income tax, you might ask? And the answer is because he made lots of income? No, in fact, his fund has been dreadful and it's been like significantly negative for the past few years. The reason he's paying so much income tax is because he made a lot of money in 2008 when um, mortgage-backed securities imploded. And somehow he's managed to defer all of that income until today. And now it's coming due. Yes, because it's after that there was a, a, a loophole that allowed a lot of hedge funds that had money overseas. And people got really upset about this after 2008. So then that loophole was closed. But as part of that, they had essentially a decade in, to pay this tax. So, Matt, 
is this is this basically the final chapter of, of John Paulson? He has to pay a billion and a half dollars and of income tax, and then now we can just stop worrying about this guy anymore. Uh, I don't think anyone's worried about his income tax bill. <laughs> um, I think he's, but it's an, it's an impressively large income tax bill. It's an impressively large income tax bill. I mean, the Wall Street Journal story about it mentioned that the IRS won't take checks for a hundred million dollars or more, and so if he's going to be paying it by check, which <laughs> For some reason, he might want to do. He's going to have to write at least, <laughs> let's say, at least eleven. If it's really a billion dollars, the the eleventh could be just for ten cents or whatever. But he really should just write as many checks as he can. <laughs> um, Anna, what's your number? So my number is eleven billion. I guess continuing with the sovereign debt theme. I thought this was just kind of a slightly interesting story of kind of how geopolitics is perhaps factoring into sovereign debt. So. Um, Qatar is going to be coming forward with uh, their own bond. And Saudi Arabia appears to have tried to kind of uh, front run them a little bit. (laughs) So Saudi Arabia was going to be coming to market with a bond, but they really rushed it, apparently didn't have a roadshow. And some people think so that they could come in front of Qatar. (laughs) So the Saudi Arabia came to market with it was like $11 billion, three different bonds. And now Qatar is going to be coming. Will it have a huge impact on pricing no it, it probably won't it's more to me just like like a kind of jerk move so so but this so basically saudi arabia rushes to market 11 billion dollars of new debt just to sort of queer the pitch for Qatar. perhaps i mean it's not as though they weren't going to come to market with this debt but it does seem like maybe the timing was somewhat based on that so i thought it was interesting well you know cutter is did you read the ben walsh article in the intercept i don't know like six months or a year ago uh, about these like these sort of buffoons who who concocted a spy caper at which they were somehow going to mess with Cutter's CDS prices in order to somehow prevent it from hosting the World Cup, and it was like they had a they had a pitch deck that included the phrase "control the yield curl, curve, control control the future" or something like that. <laughs> it's really an astonishing just dumb spy caper. <laughs> yes, I think we actually talked about that when there was the kidnapping involving uh, the yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. Like I'm telling you, man, all all of the best finance stories come out of Doha. Um, what's your number, Matt? My number is 37, which is the number of minutes between when Samsung Securities accidentally paid its employees, who was supposed to pay them a dividend of a thousand won, which is about 94 cents per share that they owned, and someone pressed the wrong button and it paid them a dividend of a thousand shares per share that they owned. <laughs> Their shares were trading at 38,000 won, 39,000. So they, there was a, they paid them 38,000 times more than they were supposed to. So if you were like, Came to work, you're expecting to get a hundred, hundred, uh, hundred dollar dividend on your shares. You got a three point eight million dollar dividend on your shares. So thirty seven minutes is the number of minutes between when they did this and when they like stopped it and turned off the ability to sell these shares. During those seventeen minutes, those thirty seven minutes, sixteen employees sold something like two hundred million dollars worth of stock. Oh my god! And are now in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but. You know, presumably knew they'd be in trouble and spent those 37 minutes thinking about it and decided they'd rather have the money and got it done. Are they all still in the country? I don't know. I, I think as far as I know, they still are technically employed at Samsung Securities, although suspended. <laughs> and I don't know exactly the mechanisms that they have to get the money back or get the shares back. But these shares are, you know, they're, they're referred to now as, as the ghost shares because like they they were 
I don't know the sort of mechanism by which they were issued, but they were apparently not validly issued, and they've all been poofed. So, and did, did if I bought one of these shares, do I own the sh- do I own anything? I think if you bought the shares, they've been poofed away, and Samsung Securities is going to give you your money back. Uh-huh. But if the employees sold the shares, the money hasn't been poofed away. Now, perhaps someone will be able to recover it, but you know. If you if you ask me, there's only one solution to this problem, which is we should put all share trading on the blockchain. <laughs> um, you know, you know, people say that like <laughs> the shares can be wherever you want them. The money <laughs> is in their yeah. bank account, right? And hopefully, in their pocket in large bills or diamonds <laughs> on the way out of the country, or or, or in Filipino casino chips. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, on which note, I think we're going to wrap up. The free portion, you might say, of Slate Money. We are going to have a little chat in Slate Plus about secured overnight financing rates because that's awesome. Dan Schrader is very excited about that. But for everyone else, thank you very much for listening to Slate Money and keep those emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.